voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at about 100 pages of the works of great American writers while giving my commentary and some historical context and some other thoughts that come into my head as I've read them. If you're reading along, um, we are still working our way through the works of Jack London, but we've reached the end. This is the final episode I'll be giving on Jack London for the foreseeable future, unless the Library of America decides to come out with a third volume of Jack London's work, something I do recommend they do at some point. There's actually, I would have two recommendations for them. One would be something I, I assume they're going to get to eventually, but that would be the Margaret Fuller, and then a third volume of Jack London. Those would be my two priority recommendations for them. But um, let's get into it. So right now we've been going through his assorted stories. So this volume that I have, which is either the first of the, I think it's the first volume by Jack London, but it's the second one I looked at, the novels and stories. It had Call of the Wild, White Fang, The Sea Wolf, The Klondike Stories, and then it had 13 just other stories. Of course, Jack London wrote a lot of short fiction in the magazines and in the popular press. Um, and he's most well known for those Klondike stories, mostly because I think we all grow up, at least Americans all grow up reading To Build a Fire and The Call of the Wild. And that's what we get of Jack London kind of in our primary education. But he wrote all these other stories, a lot of them about the Pacific, a lot about urban working class life, a lot about socialism. And these stories all written between 1911 and the end of his life. He died in 1916 at the age of 40 of, of kind of a uremia, acute uremia maybe certainly influenced by his alcohol abuse and maybe some drug abuse too. It's not really clear how he died and there's speculation that he killed himself. But I don't know how seriously that's taken now. Certainly he, he lived a very fast life and did a lot. So he accomplished more in his 40 years than most of us do and twice that time. But yeah, it's unfortunate he died because you really find some things coming together in some of these later stories. Um, I think particularly like in the red one, you, you, and one thing I like about these later stories though, is he starts to set aside his flirting with social Darwinism. He always did that in his earlier works and yeah, he was a socialist, but he, he saw something in social Darwinism and he had this tension with it. And I think by the end, he more or less had fully embraced socialism. It, it's ironic that in 1916, he leaves the socialist party. He actually ran for mayor of Oakland a few times as a socialist. But he leaves the party because, what does it say here in the book? It lost his emphasis on class struggle. So it's not because he became less of a socialist that he left it. It's, he's actually more deeply a socialist by the end of his life. Um, but anyways, uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at just six stories. And I actually don't have notes on most of these. I have notes on, on, on a couple, but I'll just kind of do it. They're, they're all pretty memorable, so I think I'll be able to do it without too many notes. All right, first we have The Strength of the Strong, 1911. This story, it's basically a straight-up allegory. Um, it's not really, it doesn't have much of a narrative at all or any plot, really. It's, it's basically a straight-up allegory about socialism and communities and civilization. It's about capitalism. It's setting, though, it's, it's like this indigenous person. I 
I think he's an Indian. He might be. It might be up in the Yukon somewhere, but it's essentially a Native American. He's in this big bear suit, and he's talking to his three grandsons. His name is Old Longbeard. We don't need to know the names of the other people. I don't think. Um, he he's just telling the story in in the initial part of this. He's talking about the past, and 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 suggesting what the future might be like. He talks about the formation of the tribe. And how strong men from the past were defeated by people united, and how this led to the formation of a tribe. Quote, After that, the rest of us crept back, and somehow, perhaps because we were in fear and felt the need for one another, we talked the thing over. It was our first council, our first real council. And in that council, we formed our first tribe. We had learned our lesson. Of the ten meat eaters, each man had the strength of ten, and the ten fought as one man. They had added their strength together. But of the 30 families and 60 men of us, we had the strength of but one man, and each man fought alone. So they decided to make a tribe to pull together their resources. Now, if you've ever read like Enlightenment political philosophy, like, like Rousseau, The Social Contract, even Thomas Paine and Common Sense does this, there's this kind of attempt to imagine how the state was formed. So you, you kind of go back in time and you do a thought experiment. And what did they have for models of societies without states? Well, they sort of thrust this onto Native Americans a lot, and they kind of used what they knew about Native Americans as a model for a stateless society. They didn't really realize how deep and entrenched states were in the Americas. They kind of assumed they were barbarians and didn't have states, so they got it wrong in that case. But here you have Jack Lennon kind of doing the same thing. So if you, re- I'm just saying, if you read that 18th century political philosophy, you're used to this effort to go back and try to understand why did states form in the first place, and then you get different theories about. It about that. You know, Hobbes had one, Locke had one, Rousseau had another. Anyway, so their enemy tribe are called the Meat Eaters. I don't think he was a vegetarian, but he, you know, he makes the bad guys the Meat Eaters here. Fighting breaks out, though, later on within the armed forces of the tribe. So the tribe actually sets up these like guards and policing forces, but they start to fight. And what this forces the tribe to do is then make laws. And the two big laws are laws against murder and laws against stealing wives. It's actually quite hard to hold this tribe together. It requires constant councils, and this is a bit odious and time-consuming. So they decide to create representatives. Councils would elect representatives, and then there'd be a chief who would answer to these councils. So basically, we got wiser government. You know, How do you move from direct democracy to a more representative form of society? People begin to move in, and the land starts to become divided. And what this leads to is the rise of a wealthy class, a landowning class, because some people are smart enough to buy up land from others. So you get kind of class divisions emerging. Next comes religion. This emerges with the rise of a preacher who's called Big Fat. He learns how to dominate the chief using religion. And after this comes the domination, exploitation of those who organize labor to take the majority of the produce and pay only a little. So we get this quote here. It's about fishing. Each string was a value of 30 fish or 40 fish, but the woman who made the string a string a day was given two fish each. The fish came out of the share of dog tooth, big fat, and sea lion, which th- they three did not eat. So all the money belonged to them, and they told the three legs and the other landowners that they would take their share of corn and roots in money. So we get the rise of exploitation, of money, of capital, right? That they're producing food but not eating the food. They sell it for, for money. And they use that money to expand their power. So basically, it's the rise of a capitalist class, if we're following the allegory here. Division of labor comes at this time in money. Meanwhile, Big Fat creates the institutions of religion, sending men away from work 
and to the face. So again, more division of labor and fewer and fewer people doing more of the hard labor and more people doing other kinds of jobs. Some of them are religion. A lot of idleness works its way into the society. We have, we have entertainers, and the example of an entertainer we have is this man named Bug who becomes the singer of songs for the king. But he's just one of many who learn how to live their life without productive work. Now, one of Old Longbeard's sons asked why people didn't rise up against those who owned all the land. And Old Longbeard's answer is that essentially it's ideology or brainwashing. Quote, because we could not understand, there was too much to think about. And also there was the guard sticking spears into us and Big Fat talking about God and Bug singing new songs. And when any man did the right thing, he said so. Tiger face and the guards got him. And he was tied down on the rocks at low tide so that the rising waters drowned him. So, yeah, it's ideology, but also at the end of the day, it becomes the force of the state to execute people. Strength of body is replaced by strength of land ownership at this point in the story. And this is something Old Beer, Old Longbeard makes clear. Of course, the story is called The Strength of the Strong. So where does the strength come from? And it changes. Early on in the story, it's the strength of an individual man, a fighter. And later on, it becomes the strength of ownership of property of money. And what can we replace this with? Well, London, at towards, towards the end of the story, and it's not very long. It's, it's like, what, 12, 15 pages. But at the end, Jack London comes out and he says, what we need to do is go back to the law. The original law was against murder and stealing wives. And the purpose of the law was to keep social order. So he just thinks we can use this same law to basically stop land ownership. The law implies a need for socialism, right? You can't dominate. The whole point of the law was to keep people from dominating each other within the society, to keep a harmonious society. And so we get a call for socialism. And that's where a new strength would come from. So where does the strength of the strong come from? This is asked towards the end of the story. We are the strong, all of us, and we are stronger than dog tooth and tiger face and three legs and pig jaw and all the rest who do nothing and eat much and weaken us by the hurt of their strength, which is bad strength. Men who are slaves are not strong. If a man who had first found the virtue and used the fire had his, used his strength, we would have been his slaves. As we are slaves today of Little Belly, who found the virtue in use of fish traps, and of the men who found the virtue in use of the land and the goats and the fire brew. So that's, that's essentially the story. So it's just an old man telling his grandsons about the history of their tribe and how it got so horrible. And a, a suggestion that the way out is something akin to socialism. These words are never used. It's never socialism, capitalism. But anyone, you know, could notice that. Now, if you don't like these straight up allegories, if you don't like being beaten over the head with socialist arguments, yeah, this is not a really good tale. It's not very elegant. You know, it's pretty obvious doing reading it. But it's, it is what it is. It's... It's Jack London being a socialist and making his case for socialism. In this sense, it's not any worse than the Iron Heel. Maybe the Iron Heel is a little bit more entertaining. But in the fact that both are, are just coming straight out and saying capitalism is bad. We need to have a better form of social organization. You know, it, it, does, it has the same kind of function. Well, next we have War. War is probably, I think it's the shortest story in this entire collection, the shortest work by, by Jack London in all these two volumes. It's like a five pages. Six pages, maybe. It's just about, uh, now the war that's being described here, it's never identified. The technology is kind of late 19th century because we have carbines, but we still have cavalry. 
but the location where it is there's some imagery that suggests kind of a rural agrarian setting but that could really be anywhere so jack london doesn't want to place this anywhere it's not like the civil war it's not the indian wars um, it's, it's just a war and we have a, a character who's like a scout and he's riding around on his horse and he eventually sees an enemy and he's a red bearded enemy and he decides not to shoot him he decides to have a moral moment when he decides not to shoot him basically in his back when he can't see his enemy then later on the battle the man who was riding this horse before the scout is shot by the same red bearded man and that that's essentially the whole story so i actually thought a lot of of, of bierce's stories about the civil war when i was examining this because he would do the same kind of thing a lot is these really short vignettes of life on the front and usually a tragic ending for the character but that's all it is. It's an anti-war story. It, it's, you know, by separating the war from any ideology or ideas or values, all you have is this brutality. Basically, you're just left with murder, right, when you, when you take all that away. And that, that's what he's trying to do here. So that, that was published, by the way, in 1911, too. So um, actually, I have three tales all from 1911 starting out today because the next one is The Mexican. The Mexican, 1911. This is one of his more famous stories, I think. It, it can kind of be paired with a piece of steak because it's about boxing. And it's about, it's got a different, it's a, kind of a very different structure, though. It's also, but it's also a tale about socialism and revolution. And I don't have kind of page-by-page page notes for this, so I'll just uh, try to give you a rough uh, image of, of what goes on in this story if you haven't read it yet. I do recommend, this is one of the ones I would say, if you haven't read it, go and read this one because it's it's a lot of fun and it's, it's, it's quite good. It's set in Mexico and the main characters are all revolutionaries trying to overthrow the, the Mexican government. Our main character is Felipe Rivera. No, oh, one context though. Of course, in 1911, you had a revolution in Mexico. This, this, and it actually spilled over and it became a big part of American history because like Zapata and, or not, not so much Zapata, but Pancho Villa was actually a bandit active in the United States. And this led Wilson to actually send in troops eventually to, to intervene in the Mexican revolution after, after he became president. So that he became president in 1912. So I think it was in 14, maybe, or 1913 or so, when Wilson sent in troops to intervene. Anyways, our main character is Felipe R Rivera. And he joins the revolutionaries. And he just sort of shows up one day and says, I want to be a revolutionary. And so he arrives to join the revolution. The revolutionaries are suspicious of him. He's a bit of an odd character. In fact, he was a survivor of, a, of an attack by government forces against like a factory that his parents worked at. So he's pretty embittered about it. Um, so he's working and they can make him job, do these odd jobs like sweep the floor and stuff. And they don't really take him seriously as one of the insiders right away. Now, as they get closer to the point of the uprising, when there's going to be the revolution, the movement needs money. And the scheme to get money is to basically prize fight and to gamble a lot of money on this and win a big purse. And Riviera decides he will fight and he'll fight the champ. And no one thinks he's going to win, right? In fact, it's, it's almost like a Rocky Apollo Creed thing where 
you know, it's seen almost like a show, right? And everyone expects him to go down, just put up a good show, and then and then fall down. Eventually, but Rivera says, "No, I, I can beat you. I am going to beat you." And he he actually pushes for the winner to get the whole purse, not not just like part of the purse. And the champ kind of resists this idea initially, but eventually they go along with it. And and the fight comes, and the fight is brutal. It's long. It goes on for 17 rounds, and eventually Rivera wins. Now, what gives him the strength to win this fight against all odds is his revolutionary zeal. So it's it's the power of ideas over phys- physicality. It's the power of will. That That's the theme of the story. And this is actually a throwback to some of these social Darwinian themes, but rather than just being this brutal struggle of survival we get in like the love of life, it's it's got this purpose of of revolution. All right, so that's the story. Um, it, it's it's nice. It's the description. He does a good job describing boxing. It, it, it's like the piece of steak where the fight is the central event, but there's a lot of con- contextual important events in the context of why they're fighting, like the reason of being in the ring. Different in the two stories, but they're both kind of rooted in social injustice and, and a response to social injustice being fought out in the ring, violence being a response to to the social injustice political injustice more so in the case of the mexican all right the next story we have is told in the drooling ward published in 1914 initially so this is the last of the stories we'll look at that was actually published during jack london's lifetime the last two were posthumous told in the drooling ward is that it's it's narrated by someone tom is his name he's in a asylum for feeble-minded people. He separates himself from the droolers. Right? The droolers are the people who are like, like really long gone. He considers he's like a high-functioning, quote-unquote high-functioning feeb, high-grade feeb, I think is the term they use here. He's been there, he's like 28, but he's been there since he was like 25. And the main plot of the story is this escape attempt where they're trying to escape from it. But at the end of the story, when they're trying to escape, they're not even taken seriously. They're like found out that they're doing it and they're like, we're going to escape. And the guard or the doctor's like, okay, just come back before it's too dark, before it's too late. Almost like, you know, how when kids run away, when you're, if you're a parent and your kid threatens to run away, you're like, okay, but be back before dinner. You don't really take them seriously. But it seems that the characters are serious about attempting an escape from this institution, which really limits their, their freedoms. And in fact, the escape attempt is is serious, but it's broken down by the fact that he takes along with him like an epileptic, epileptic who it makes it difficult. So he has to go back eventually. But he says, next time I'm going to escape for real. Now, is it just, a, again, like the kid who comes back for dinner but says, next time I'm really going to run away? Or is he serious about it? I, I think we should take him a little bit serious here because the there are things he wants out of life that he's not getting. He's not unintelligent. He doesn't seem to have, I mean, he seems like the kind of person who could function in, in the reg- outside in the regular world. He got put there as a young age and he never was able to escape. So this institution trapped him. Now, certainly there are people here who maybe who really do need this help. There's people around him who really do need the medical attention that this institution provides. But our narrator does not seem to be one of them. In fact, he's, He's asked by one of the nurses, like, why doesn't he write a book about his experiences in, in the quote-unquote drooling ward? 
he falls in love with one of the nurses and thinks he can have a life as a, as a married man with a regular job and all that. He actually is put to work in the institution because he's so capable. So there's a lot of suggestions here that he doesn't shouldn't be there. He doesn't need to be there and escape would be good for him. Um, so I think we should eat whether he's going to escape or not is another question. But does he have a right to have a life outside this institution? It seems the evidence given in the tale is he does. Now, of course, the narrator is the one who provides this evidence to us. So maybe we can leave it as suspect. But I think this is an anti-institutional uh, statement, at least talking about how these asylums bring in more people than they need because you know for various reasons one reason given in the text here is that they want this guy to work for him work for them make it easier to to run the institution so yeah this guy should be free but he's stuck in the drilling ward for now he's basically a prisoner of, of because of a decision made when he was a young child okay next we have the water baby the water baby is just a it's a it's a story within it's stories within a story uh we have the narrator listening to i think he's white born on hawaii though and he's listening to kokohuma who's telling him these stories they're all like they're fishing and he's telling these stories especially stories of maui this polynesian god the same guy that was in moana i guess so some of the same stories like lifting islands and, and things like that are, are described here. And it, it just goes through all this, this folklore. And kind of the punchline of the story is that Kokohuma, Kokohumu uses the fact that there's these lava rocks as evidence that the stories are real. And the narrator seems to think, well, the fact that these rocks here, they had to be explained, so you created these stories. That That's the tension. It's like, what is folklore accurate, or is it just a way we explain the, the world before we have scientific understanding? So we have a clash here between, the, I guess, the scientific understanding of physical phenomenon and the mythological and the folklore one. Yet, I think what I like what Jack Lennon does here is he doesn't come to the conclusion that, that, that the one is better than the other, right? In fact, if we take away the mythological explanations for things, we lose all these wonderful stories. And, you know, well, of course, we still have the stories. We still have the Greek myth, right? We still have Zeus. We still can say Zeus caused lightning. But there's a mysticism here and, and kind of a fascination that the fact that this is really believed. There's almost a religious experience we want to think of in a William Jamesian sense, that these religious experiences are real things that you experience that if we don't have this belief, we can't really get at and we lose that, that experience. But anyways, it's, it's a fun little story. If you're interested in Hawaiian or Polynesian folklore, you could go to the Water Baby and get a little taste of it. And then this, that was actually published in 1918, uh, two years after London's death. Uh, you know, there was, of course, publishers were trying to publish his stuff after he died. And a lot of his later works that I hadn't yet seen print got, got put out at that time. Uh, the final one is The Red One, also published in 1918, another posthumously published story. And this one is a real doozy. This is not, it's science fiction. Uh, it's not the only science fiction he wrote. He, he did write others. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name. Certainly The Scarlet Plague is science fiction. The Unparalleled Invasion, which mysteriously is not included in this collection is also a science fiction tale. It's like the Scarlet Plague in that it it's about a plague that destroys all of 
East Asia and allows it to be settled by white people. Um, but that's not in this, this collection at all. So unfortunately, we can't look at it. But the red one is, is, is science fiction, um, straight up science fiction. Our main narrator, narrator is Bassett, or I guess he's not the he's not the narrator. Sorry, we got an external narrator, but he's the main character. He's the main point of view character we have. Bassett is his name, and he's like a scientist who's exploring some Polynesian island. He's trying to collect butterflies, I think. And anyways, he gets sick, and he needs help, and he's eventually found by this woman, Ballet. Ballet is described as incredibly ugly, uh, almost simian in her features. And so like the ugliest woman of the tribe finds him and saves his life, essentially. So he's he's kind of in, he's indebted to this this woman. In fact, she takes him back to the tribe. And this is a tribe of headhunters. And one of the headhunters he comes to live with and he cares for him. What's his name? Nugurn, Nugurn, N-G-U-R-N. And so he's being kind of cared for in this home of this headhunter. And he's got all the heads of all his enemies and the people he killed. Right. So this is a tradition in some parts of Polynesia where when you kill someone, you cut off their head. And they even have the technology to shrink these heads and stuff. And you've probably seen images of these 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 things. Uh, you can look it up on Wikipedia, certainly, or just search around on Google for these shrunken heads. Um, that's what it does. And he wants this guy's head. He wants Bassett's head because he'd have like a white guy's head. This is... And he's actually preparing for much of the story. He's preparing for when he'll die and he can cut off his head and, and shrink it. Now, the other part of the plot, of course, is Ballot thinks he has a, she has a right to marry him and basically says, you're going to be my husband now. He he actually has sex with her, but doesn't really care for her. He doesn't want to marry her. He thinks she's too ugly and he's actually disgusted by her. But he makes an excuse like I have a taboo uses the Polynesian custom of taboo and he, as an excuse. And he says, my taboo is I can't marry unless like the Southern Cross is at a certain part of the sky or, or something. I forget the exact uh, details, but it's something to do with the sky. So that gives him like nine months to, to survive uh, before he has to marry her. And he thinks I'll be dead by then or I can escape either. You know, if either of those happen, I'll have worse things to worry about than marrying this woman. So that's his hope. Now the, there's a broader context here, and that is this religion of the Red One. The local people all worship the Red One, and it sings. It makes these noises that these really that that you can hear. But there's a taboo that only the people of the tribe can see the Red One. Anyone else who sees it has to die. And they actually sacrifice people to this to the Red One. He imagines the Red One is like like a wicker man or something, like a tall or like a tall statue that they that they worship too that somehow they rigged up to make noise and so they think maybe it's like the wind passing through or something that's a, it's a statue that can make noises that way eventually bassett is able on one of his days he's feeling better because he's really sick and dying he, t he convinces ballot to take him to see the red one and she's really scared to do that because that will mean her death taking a f outsider to see the red one leads to a horrible death like a week of torture before you're finally killed but she's so in love with him that she takes him and he sees it eventually. And then they go back. Um, so he doesn't get that good of a look at it. He doesn't spend that much time with it, but he does glance at it. And what the red one is, is basically a big, a massive pearl. And it seems this thing dropped from outer space. 
right? Like remember when aliens brought it there or it just fell like in the Colorado space or something. Just something fell out and it hit the earth. Speaking of the Colorado space, that was written later. That's H.P. Lovecraft's story about uh, an asteroid that hits the earth. I wonder what Jack London had in mind with this uh, story. Perhaps he's thinking of the Tagusta event, because certainly that's what Lovecraft was responding to when he wrote The Color of a Space. That was in 1908, so Jack London would have known of that, so maybe it, that's what this is. The Tagusta event was a big like meteorite that hit in Siberia somewhere and you know destroyed this huge area of land, right? Like I think like hundreds of square miles were destroyed of forest by this meteorite. Meteor, meteorite, I forgot which is the right term. Um, so maybe that's what he was thinking of here. But anyways, this thing landed sometime in the past, and since then this tribe has been worshipping this thing. And it makes these noises, it makes these sounds. And Bassett becomes increasingly obsessed with the red one as he reaches the end of his life. And he starts to imagine what the world that, that these aliens that created this thing had. And here we get a statement, even in this story, a statement about socialism. Quote, who were they? Who were they, those far distant and superior ones who had bridged the sky with their gigantic red iridescent heaven singing message? Surely and long since had they too trod the path on which man had so recently by the calendar of the cosmos set his feet. And to be able to send such a message across the pit of space, surely they had reached those heights in which man, in tears and travails, in bloody sweat and darkness and confusion of many councils, was so slowly struggling. And what were they on their heights? Had they won brotherhood? Or had they learned that the law of love imposed the penalty of weakness and decay? Was it strife? Life? Was it the rule of all the universe and pitiless rule of natural selection? And the most immediately and poignantly were their far conclusions, their long-won wisdom shut out, shut then, sorry, shut even then in the huge metallic heart of the red one, waiting for the first earthman to read? Of one thing he was certain, no drop of red dew shaken from the lion mane of some sun in torment was the sounding sphere. It was of design, not chance, and it contained the speech and wisdom of the stars. End quote. So now, brotherhood, he says, did they reach brotherhood yet? Brotherhood <coughs> Excuse me. Brotherhood is the term for the society envisioned in the future of the Iron Heel. In fact, the dates given in that story are like after the Brotherhood or the Great Brotherhood of Man or something. Brotherhood of Man maybe is the, is the name of that regime, that socialist regime that replaces the Iron Heel in that story. So eventually Bassett knows he's going to die. So he goes to his captor, to Nugurum, and says, okay, I have a deal that will resolve three wants. One is the want of law, the law that demands someone who sees the red one died. I've seen the red one, so I should die. Second, I think he doesn't admit he saw him, but it's implied that it, he owes a death because he saw it. Second, my desire to hear the song in, in it, you know, to get another look at it and see the song, and then your desire for my head, you know, sooner than later, will all be met. You take me to see the red one and then punish me by chopping off my head. And so Nagoram says, Yeah, it's about time you said this because, you know, you've been dying here for months and causing, wasting a lot of space. 
you know, you should get out of the way when you're that when you're about to die, not stick around and live for too long. So he takes him and he's sacrificed in front of the red one. And then because he's our point of view narrative, the story ends at that point. A really wonderful tale. I, I'm glad this collection included one of his science fiction tales. I wish I had read more of them. I wish I'd read like The Scarlet Plague. Um, maybe I'll get a chance someday in the future to read it. But he does have these science fiction tales. He's got horror stories too. We actually haven't seen any of his horror stories, which he which he wrote. Anyways, we still got I think a good look at Jack London here over these over I think it's over two months I've been looking at uh, and uploading these these episodes on Jack London so we're we're ending we're closing the book on Jack London really one of America's great writers um, one of the great voices for socialism in American literature um, a really good window into the Gilded Age into the progressive era in a lot of ways he foreshadows a lot of the themes and the issues and debates of the progressive era in american politics so it's all in there and they're just great stories about the frontier he's very much a frontier writer about the pacific about the klondike the gold rush life in california the urban frontier so lots of great stories lots of good stuff on race in fact, one of the best books I've read on Jack London is uh, Jack London's Racial Lives, which really focuses on his racial philosophy, not so much his socialist politics, but his, his racism, which has tainted a bit of his legacy. Anyways, I guess that's all I'm going to say about Jack London. I probably said too much. So what are we going to do next? Well, you know, I've already said, you know, I, the way these work, I, I read several weeks in advance and then I record them and I actually upload them a few weeks after I record them. I, I do that just in case life gets ahead of me and I need to, you know, I'm not able to record for a few weeks. I don't want to stop uploading. So it's too late to change. I wanted to do a, a, a woman. I have looked at women writers before, but that was only in the context of the Harlem Renaissance. So I, I thought about who to do and I looked at my collection of Library of America volumes and I actually was surprised how few women writers I had represented in it. I, at the time, I had about 100 volumes. And I've since bought 30 more, and I'm waiting for them to come. It takes a while to get here to from Taiwan. There's a bunch of women writers in the stuff I bought. But basically, I was left with like Flannery O'Connor, Louisa May Alcott, and... Who else? Bishop. Is it Emily, Elizabeth Bishop, the poet, uh, Bishop. And I had uh, Hurston, Zora Neale Hurston. And I, I just I decided to go with Alcott, um, partially because it's it's nearing the holidays. And of course, Little Women, the first part of Little Women is set around two Christmases. So I was kind of in the Christmas mood when I when I picked up the book, I guess. So that's where we're going. Louisa May Alcott's uh, Little Women trilogy. Three novels. First, we'll look at Little Women. Then we'll look at Little Men, and then Joe's Boys. They're they're all the same. They're 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 all connected through the character of, of Joe Marsh, later Joe Bear. So that's what that's where we'll go. I don't know if that will lead to a whole series of the Sleepy Hollow writers. I, I've thought about maybe doing that. That that would be a much bigger project. Um, 
but I have the materials to do it if I wanted to do it. The Sleepy Hollow writers, I'm referring to the, to the writers buried together at the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord. It's Louisa May Alcott, Thoreau, Emerson, and, and I think Cawthorn's there too. So that would be a really big project if I wanted to go in to look at all of them, and it might be a little too much for uh, a podcast like this. But for now, I'm only going to commit to looking at Louisa May Alcott's Little Women trilogy. So you can look forward to that. Um, I know many of you have read Little Women, so if you have comments or suggestions before I get into that, uh, well, of course, by the time you this is uploaded, I've already um, recorded some episodes, but I'll try to work in. If you do have suggestions for me, I'll try to work them into some of the later episodes. I'll be looking at those three novels, though, the, the Little Women trilogy. So anyways, with that, I will leave. I'll close the door fully on Jack London. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, please write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment uh, on Podbean or leave a review or any of those things will help me greatly. Thank you for reading uh, Jack London along with me. And thank you for listening. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Glendike.